I hear the rustling of popcorn bags. I, I wasn't anticipating that until this moment. I hope, uh, man, I hope you found something to eat. Listen, we'll have plenty of stuff out there after the service as well. Uh, but we're going to turn in the corner here and we're going to get into God's word for a few moments because how many of you know that's the most important thing we can do today? Amen. Amen. Listen, I'm going to do something I don't typically do in a, in a service. We don't use a lot of video typically, especially in my messages. But, uh, when I looked at the media that was presented, uh, for football Sunday, I was so touched by the unique testimonies of some of the athletes. So in the course of this message, you're going to hear three testimonies from NFL players. And I, I just want you to know my heart in this. I believe God has a word that he wants to speak to you. To me, I believe that God wants to say something to us today. And I've prayed about it and we've prepared. And listen, I believe what's going to be said on the video might be every bit as significant as what I'm going to say as I present the Word of God to you. So I want to invite you to really lean in with your heart to everything that happens in the course of this service, whether it's my speaking or, or watching a testimony on video because I believe God is really going to speak to our hearts. So we're going to just pray right now before we get into this message today. <clears throat> Father, thank you so much for the privilege that we have of being together with the body of Christ. God, I just pray, my expectation is that in these next few moments, something supernatural will happen. Lord, your word says in First Peter that if anyone speaks... Let him speak as the oracle of God. And so, Lord, I'm asking you to do something miraculous. Would you take my lips? Would you take my words and breathe your life into them? God, would you speak to our hearts today in this service? God, we're listening. In Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. Amen. I want to take you, if, if you uh, don't mind getting butter on your Bible, open your Bible with me to Philippians chapter 2. I want to show you a verse here, and I love, I love the book of Philippians. I love what, uh, what it says to the body of Christ about how to be the body of Christ. And Paul wrote this letter to encourage Christians. But truth be told, when you, when you read what he said, sometimes it can even be a little bit discouraging because he sets the bar so high for what it means, uh, to be the body of Christ, for what it means to be the people of God. And, and if by some chance you're not a follower of Jesus today, and, and if by some chance you just opened a Bible and you read the book of Philippians, you might be intimidated a little bit at what it calls us to do and who it calls us to be as individuals. But Paul did write this letter as a word of encouragement. And let me just show you how high he sets the bar. I want to read one verse to you in Philippians chapter 2. It's verse number 5. And here's what it says. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus now, if that doesn't set the bar high, I don't know what does. He says, let your attitude be like Jesus' attitude. He goes on to talk about how we ought to put others before ourselves, uh, not consider ourselves <coughs> higher than we should. He says things uh, in there like, don't look out for your own interests, but look out for the interests 
of others. And so what Paul does to encourage them with this high and lofty standard is he gives them examples out of Scripture. And the first example that he gives is Jesus himself. Philippians chapter 2 gives this incredible exhortation of who Jesus is and how he came and he humbled himself and he laid his deity aside and he became a servant even to the point of death. But then he gives us a little bit uh, more attainable goal by mentioning three other men in Philippians chapter 2 that model this for us. What does it look like to put others first? What does it look like to be a Christian, to be a part of the body of Christ? And he mentions three people. The first is himself, and then he mentions a young man named Timothy, and then he mentions a third guy named Epaphroditus. Now, I'm not going to have time to get to that last guy with the funny name, but the first one is himself. And when Paul mentions himself, if, if you don't Pay attention, you, you overlook this because he spends about six verses talking about Timothy and Epaphroditus and only one verse talking about himself. But if you understand the context of what he says about his own life, you see that it's some weighty and significant words. And so I want to read the encouragement that he gives the church about how to be the church, about how to get along based on his own life. And it's found in verse 17. Of Philippians chapter 2. Check it out. It says, But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, <coughs> I am glad and I rejoice with all of you. Now that might not carry a whole lot of significance for us today, but let me help you to see what they saw when he said that. Paul used a, a powerful word picture, a verb uh, that we have translated as poured out. But it was a technical term. When he used that, that verb, poured out, it was a technical term that described a very specific sacrifice that these people were very familiar with. <coughs> It was a pagan sacrificial offering. And so if a Roman or, or a Greek would come to the altar to make a sacrifice, here's what would happen. They would take an animal of value and they would place it on the altar and they would, uh, they would sacrifice that animal and then they would light that animal on fire and that sacrifice would burn on the altar. But then they would make a second offering. It was called a libation. And that second offering was they would take a cup of wine and they would bring that cup of wine over and they would pour it on top of the altar. They would pour the cup of wine on top of the sacrifice that was already being consumed. And because the sacrifice was hot and it was already burning, when the wine uh, libation would hit it, all of a sudden it would just evaporate into a puff of steam. It would go up as a cloud before the Lord. That That picture is what every reader of this letter saw when he said these words, I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith. Here's what Paul's saying. Now you got to understand, when Paul wrote this letter, he was in prison. He's their pastor. He started the church. And he's writing this letter and he's saying, look, I know you're worried about me. I know you're concerned for what's going on in my life. And, and the, the reality is I may very well not escape this prison. My life may be laid down as a sacrifice on a pagan altar. It might happen. But here's what I want you to understand, Philippi. 
I want you to understand that my life is not the main thing. My life is not the substance. It's not the significant sacrifice on the altar. No, no, no. I'm, I'm just the, I'm just the offering that's being poured out and poured onto the significant sacrifice. So look at that verse again. He's, what's the significant sacrifice? <clears throat> he said, I'm being poured out on the sacrifice and service that's coming from your faith. <clears throat> Understand something here today. Paul, the apostle, is the greatest Christian to ever live. I mean, if there was anybody that was important and significant in the eyes of church history, it's Paul the Apostle. And yet, here's his attitude that he models for them and for us. He says, my life is not the main thing. What I'm doing, whether I live or die in this prison, is not the main thing. My life is just a libation. It's being poured out into your life and into what God is doing in the church and what God is doing through your faith. Can I tell you, church, that's how I feel this morning about this church. I don't want, I don't want people to think of this church and just think of one person. Or I don't want to do something for the next 30 years of my life. And then when people come and stand over, stand over me at the end of my days, they go, yeah, he, he did a pretty good job pastoring churches. No. No, I don't want my life to be all about me. I'm not the main thing. I want to pour myself into something that's significant, something that's weighty, something that's going to matter, something that is eternal. It's the way I feel about my own daughters. I don't, I don't want my life to just be about me and my pursuit of happiness. I want to invest myself into the next generation. When when I'm dead and gone, I want there to be something of me that still resonates in their hearts and in their lives and in their families' lives. I want to pour myself into something that's more significant. And I want to challenge you just with a question this morning. Make this personal to yourself. Are you living a life that is all about you? Or have you found something of value to pour yourself into? Because we're called for more than just our own pursuits, but to invest what God has done in us into the lives of other people. I want you to hear a story from an athlete who got it. I got to know Anquan Boldham at the 2015 Walter Payton Man of the Year Award. I was impressed not only by his humility, but by his genuine concern for others. This is his story. It's always been a dream of mine to play in the NFL. It's probably the greatest platform that a person can have. When I first got in the NFL, I was selfish. I wanted things my way when I wanted it, how I wanted it. It was just a, a time where I felt like I had accomplished what I set out to do. Everything that I had went through as a kid, all the hardships, all of that, you know, I felt like at that time it had paid off. You know, I was in the NFL, achieved my dream, scoring touchdowns. So, yeah, I was on top of the world. 
think when when I had my son, for me it brought about a new perspective on life. I realized that everything I did affected him in one way or another, whether it be good or bad. There was things that I went through in my life that I never wanted my son to go through. And I just realized, man, there was things that I was doing that I just couldn't do no more. I wasn't living for just Anquan anymore. So I became a little more serious about my relationship with my now wife. She saw in me what at times I couldn't see. And she used to always tell me, I see the man that God wants you to be. I see the man that you can be. And whenever you have somebody challenging you like that, you have to take a look at yourself. I want to be able to worship in every aspect of my life. I want to be obedient in every part of my life. In my marriage, in my job, in my finances. I mean, there's times where God is asking us to step outside of our comfort zone and go to Africa. There's other times where God is asking me to step out of my comfort zone and do an interview or speak before a crowd about my life. I've always wanted to help those that are in my community because it's not a lot of opportunity there. Initially, I never wanted to start a foundation. I wanted to do everything anonymously. And then I had this older gentleman come to me and he was like, look, you doing things behind closed doors, that's fine. But if you want people to partner with you, it would be good for you to start a foundation. We started with my hometown, Pahokee, Florida. Small town right on Lake Okeechobee. You know, so we have different programs. Education is a huge component of ours with the foundation. So we have a summer enrichment program, which is credit recovery for kids that are falling behind in school. We get those kids back on track to graduate. The more that I fell in love with Jesus, the more I looked for opportunities to serve people. Like what I do is not for an award. I don't help people to be recognized. Like if I can do it all behind closed doors, I would. But we do do it for a greater reward. Like the Bible tells us to store up our treasures in heaven. So how do we do that? By doing the will of God here on earth. Until you really seek God, you won't really know him. And sometimes the only time that people will get to know who God is, is by watching our lives. I love that Anquan said, the more I fell in love with Jesus, the more I looked for opportunities to serve other people. I just want you to just think for a moment, just a personal assessment of your life. Who has God put in your life right now that he wants you to help build a bridge to help them to get over something they're facing or get through something that they're facing. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's practically walking with them. Maybe it's prayerfully. Maybe it's just a word of encouragement. But listen, when you come into faith with Jesus Christ, you are called into the bridge building business. It's what we're called to do. The way we say it around here at this church is that we want to lead people from where they are to where God wants them to be. To come along and to help somebody else. 
Now, back in Philippians chapter 2, Paul would have loved to have gone to Philippi and to encourage them, but he couldn't do it because he was in prison. So he did the very next best thing that he could think of. <coughs> he sent Timothy. He sent Timothy. The Bible says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 20, he's describing this young man. He says this about Timothy. He says, I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. Now, Timothy was a young man that Paul had trained. Paul had mentored him. Thankfully, Paul understood that you can't do it alone. So long before he ever got locked in prison, he spent time investing in other people. And so when he needed a partner, somebody else to go in his stead, he had Timothy that was there ready to be a blessing to the church. And he said, Timothy is a guy who has concern for you, genuine concern. There's nobody else like him. Church, that's why it's important that we invest in other people, that we build each other up. Because as we've been saying all this year, from the first Sunday in January, we're better together. <clears throat> that's God's plan for this unstoppable force called the church, that we invest in one another. That was his plan from the very beginning. That's how the gospel went from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth, Acts 1.8 says. It's about making disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. Who has God put in your life today that he wants you to begin to build a bridge to help them to get where they need to go? You know, I was thinking about this. Of course, today's the, the Super Bowl. And here's the thing. Guaranteed, somebody is going to have a terrible game today. Guaranteed. I mean, it might be a lineman that keeps jumping offside, missing the snap count. It might be a quarterback that throws three interceptions. Maybe it's a safety that just keeps getting burned on the deep route. But somebody is going to have a terrible game. But here's the way this works, and you all know this. If when the clock ticks down to zero and they're on the winning team, they still get a ring. They still get the championship ring, right? Listen, there's players that are suiting up that won't even step on the field today. They're not going to get one snap. They're not going to get one play. They're going to stand on the sideline. But if their team wins when the final whistle blows and the confetti falls, they're going to get the ring. They're going to get the championship because they understood something at the beginning of the season that all of my effort, all of my striving, all of my fighting, all of my practicing, all of my preparation, it's not about me. I'm not the main thing. I'm not the substance on the altar. I'm just being poured into something that's bigger than all of us. It's a total team effort. And that's what Paul was trying to communicate about his own life. Can I encourage you today with this thought? You're on the winning team. Amen. Thank you. Somebody read the back of the book. You're on the winning team. You win. Say, well, I had a, I had a terrible week, but we win. Yeah, but you don't know what I've gone through. Yeah, but you're on the right side of the field. And we know how it ends. You're on the winning team. So I want to do something today very practical just to symbolize this because sometimes we need to be reminded. And some of our ushers are going to help me with this. But I want you to know you're on a winning team. And so we're going to, we're going to, we're going to armor up right now. We're going to get in uniform. I've got some bracelets. I'm wearing one right now. And I want to give one to everybody here. You guys, come on. I want to give one to everybody here. You can take this and, and put it on as a simple reminder <coughs> that we're on the same team. It says right on, it says, better together. 
And this is a theme that God has spoken to us as a church for this whole year. But listen, you might be a guest here and you go, well, this isn't my church. Listen, you're on the winning team and the winning team is bigger than this local church. Amen? It's the capital C church. It's the body of Christ. It's the kingdom of God. And it doesn't matter if you're Pentecostal or Presbyterian, charismatic or Catholic. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, how many of you know you're on the winning team? Amen. We're on the winning team today. So I want you to uh, get these bracelets out. and This is something you can hang on to and remember that God has you in a family. That our life is not just about us and, and our own pursuits, but it's about something greater that He wants to do in and through all of us together. I want to remind you today that you're part of a team. <coughs> and I want to invite you, and this is important, I want to invite you to invest yourself into something that is bigger, something that is more lasting something that is going to have more impact than your life and my life, to invest yourself in a dream that is bigger than your own generation, but to do something that's going to be significant in the earth. We're called to build God's kingdom, to build His kingdom in our generation. But let's build something that's going to last. Amen? Amen. Can we do something since it's football Sunday? Alright, this is going to be hokey and that's why I'm doing it. I, I like, I like hokey sometimes. So, on the count of three, we're all just going to say better together. One, two, three. Better together. Some of y'all never been on a team before. I can tell by the way you did that. Some of you have, so help them out. You got to drop it down into the chest range. You know what I mean? Better together. That doesn't scare anybody. You got to like send chills through the enemy's camp, alright? So we're going to try this one more time on three. One, two, three. Better together. I want you to watch another story. We've been married for 11 years, five kids, that's right, five kids. Right, and whoever said marriage was easy was clearly never married. Marriage is tough, and this story is about two people who have overcome their past to have the thriving marriage they have today. We have watched Brandon and Mishi Marshall grow personally in their relationship with the Lord and with each other, but it wasn't easy. This is their story. We grew up in a neighborhood in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania that now is the poorest neighborhood in all of Pennsylvania. It was very volatile. A lot of drugs. My father actually sold drugs, what he did for a living. But I remember my mother sitting in her room day in and day out, smoking cigarettes, and getting to a point where she would have a fifth of Hennessy every single day. There was uh, fighting, um, but there was only just fighting in our house. There was fighting next door. There was fighting across the street, the street over. Me, she and I married. I thought couples fight. I thought families fight, but you just... You know, that's what happens and you just get past it, you make up. But it was my belief because of the environment I come from. So I had to drop all of my belief, my belief system that was formed starting at the age of two and figure out what is a woman? What is a man? How am I supposed to treat a woman? Because I've never seen that in a healthy way. I grew up in a single parent household. My father, and I use that term loosely, was an abuser. He abused my mom. And 
I didn't grow up in a household with abuse, so to speak, because my mom was able to get away from that. I was molested when I was younger, the age of 12. This is probably my first time ever saying this on an open forum. But to have not ever been able to trust a man, to have not known anybody that would be able to protect or provide, shaped me. I didn't know what it was for a man to love a woman. I also didn't know what it was to love a man because I didn't see it. Seeing my parents argue or seeing others argue or seeing the dysfunction in my household and, and, and saying that's not right. I didn't know right, but I knew that wasn't right. There was this, uh, this, this period of five or six years when my life was spinning out of control and I just didn't even know better. It wasn't until I got with Mishi and we started seeking and starting surrounding ourselves with saints and the right people to pour into our lives and diving into the word and praying and meditating on the word where that clarity came. So before I even had children, I wanted to help the next generation of my family um, better themselves. And in order to do that, I have to live my life by example and live my life the best way that I can and the best way that I know how. Now that we have children, it's a whole nother ball game because not only am I responsible for helping them see Christ, I'm responsible for leading them up in Christ. We need to break the cycle. So we went through this whole thing of bettering ourselves, bettering our marriage, bettering our communication. You know, we just worked on it. The covenant that Brandon and I made with each other and the covenant we made with God is that we will break the generational cycle in our family. We will take our marriage seriously. We will show each other grace. We will work through our struggles, and we will find purpose in our pain. I just remember praying for four or five years, Father, help me break this cycle. I'm sitting on my knees, and I'm praying, and I couldn't get any words out. And I just started laughing, because in that moment, it was the first time I was able to say, the cycle was broken. You know, everybody has a story. And in this room, I can imagine if you look back in your story, every one of us can come up with a list, maybe a short one, maybe a long one of reasons that it can't change. Maybe it's just been this way too long. But I, I love that testimony from Brandon and Mishi Marshall because they don't make excuses about their past. They don't blame what happened to them or where they came from. They came to a place in their life where he said the cycle has to be broken in my life. And I want to tell you today, the cycle can be broken in your life. It doesn't matter what you've been through or where you've come from. That's what it means to, to come to Christ. It means to get a new start. I want to show you a verse. And if you're familiar with the, the hymns of the church, you'll recognize uh, these words. But they come right out of Lamentations chapter 3. And the writer says this. He says, because of the Lord's great love, we are not 
consumed. <clears throat> For his compassions never fail. Then he says this in the next verse. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. How many of you know that song, Great is Thy Faithfulness? His compassions are new every morning. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, in verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. That's, that's how you break the cycle in your life. That's how you get a new start. If anyone is in Christ, that just means to, to come to Christ with all of your heart, to believe, to surrender your life to Him. It means that the old is gone and the new is here. A new start, a new opportunity. And, and as I listen to that testimony, I just love that Brandon said, I, I kneeled down before God and, and I cried out and I prayed. And then suddenly he just began to laugh as he realized for the first moment in his life that the cycle was broken off of his life. Hear me today. God wants to break negative cycles off of your life. Whether it's a, a cycle of just having a low self-esteem or maybe it's some kind of uh, physical addiction or, or some vice that you keep going back to. Or maybe it's just a, a perception of yourself that is far less than who God has created you to be. He wants to break that cycle of thinking, that cycle, that pattern of sin in your life. He wants to break it off of your life. He can do it. If you'll come to Him, you'll be able to say the same. The old is finally gone. The new is here. I, I want to look one more time at the promise that was in that video package. It's in Psalms chapter 103, verse 17. Here, here's what it says again. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear Him. And his righteousness with their children's children. Here's what I want you to understand about this verse. Every promise from God's word has a premise. I'm going to say that again. Every promise has a premise. The promise there is that the Lord's love is with those. The premise is his love is with those who fear him. And part of the promise is, is righteousness and blessing to your children and to your children's children. I'm talking about being invested in something that's more significant and more lasting than your own life. But there's a premise that goes along with the promise of God. One of the greatest promises of God is found in 1 John 1.9. And we often quote it in the church because it's so powerful. But it begins with a premise that says, If, if we confess our sins. He is faithful and just, and He will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That's what God wants to do. That's the promise He wants to fulfill in every person's life, regardless of what your story is, regardless of what your past is. He wants to fulfill that promise of forgiveness and investing everlasting life into you. But the premise is that we come and we confess. <clears throat> and when we do that, God will break the cycle every time. If we confess, He'll cleanse. If, if we surrender, He'll save. If we'll, come, if we'll kneel, God will heal. He'll show up. Every promise has a premise. But here's the good news about it. Every 
promise is available for us. Every promise is available for you today, no matter what your story is. And can I just remind the church about something for a minute? Because we tend sometimes to to hear moments like this in a message and start thinking that this is the introductory offer package that God rolls out for new believers. Right? Like this is, this is what God says for people that are far from God. But then once you're in, once you're on the team, once you're wearing the jersey, then you know, you don't get all those benefits anymore. But listen, every promise is available to every one of us today. No matter what you've faced or how long you've been serving God. Maybe, maybe you're here today and you love God, but you're struggling because for you it just feels like that God, yes, He's present, but He hasn't shown up for you. He hasn't shown up in, in your life and in your moment and in your time of need. Listen, if there's ever a person in the Bible that understood what it meant to love Jesus with all their heart and to feel like God has not come through for them, it was the Apostle John. John walked with Jesus. In fact, he was one of the closest to Jesus. The Bible says that Jesus had the multitudes that surrounded him, but within the multitudes were his 72 followers. But within that group was his 12 disciples that he selected so that they could be with him. But even within that circle was a smaller circle of three friends, Peter, James, and John. But even closer, John was the one whom Jesus loved. He had a close relationship with Jesus. But some 60 years after Jesus had died on the cross, rose from the grave and ascended back to heaven, the church was experiencing incredible persecution. During that time, persecution like they had never seen before. And John himself, the historians tell us that they attempted to boil him alive, to kill him. But he didn't die. And so John was exiled to an island called Patmos. And he was there on this island. He was physically hurting. He was emotionally feeling alone and vulnerable and and isolated from the family of God. And it was in that moment of feeling hurt and lonely and in physical pain that Jesus appeared to John. 60 years after his ascension, Jesus appears. And when John sees him, it's the most beautiful thing he's ever seen. Jesus is radiant. He's beautiful. He's power. He's powerful. And John has never seen anything like that. And in Revelation chapter 1, he describes what he sees in that moment. Look at it with me. It says in verse 17, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and he said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now, look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and of the grave. Listen, you may be here today and maybe you love Jesus, but you feel lonely. Maybe you served God and you believed God, but you're hurting. Maybe emotionally or maybe even physically. I want to invite you to trust Him again today like it's the first time. Listen, church, please listen. God has not forgotten you. I want you to hear one more powerful testimony, and then we're going to pray.
In this life, we all experience physical and emotional pain. Just this year, I lost a loved one, like many of you have before. And I can tell you that pain is one of the hardest things to overcome. Debrika Shaw and Kirsten Ferguson have experienced deep pain, and it's something that has not gone away quickly. This is their story. friend of mine was his publicist at the time. Um, she wanted to uh, all go out one night, so I said, sure, let's go. You know, I saw Kirsten, uh, I knew as soon as I saw her, I was like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm probably going to you know, try to get at her a little bit because, you know, she was nice. It was just easy and fun. Kind of all the things you dream about as a little girl, you know, you meet your husband, the love of your life, and you move into a beautiful home, and then you have children, and you kind of live happily ever after, and that was kind of my mindset. I knew that I wanted children one day, but that one day wasn't that day. We got pregnant, and... It was like, this is what was supposed to happen, you know? We went in and we saw the ultrasound, and I'm just chit-chatting with the girls that are doing the ultrasound, and then all of a sudden it, it went quiet. And, you know, my doctor told me, you know, by this time you should definitely see a heartbeat, and, but there wasn't even, there wasn't even a baby. It was, it was, there was nothing. The intense pain just starts, and it's full-on labor, basically. So I'm screaming. Brick is running up and down the stairs trying to get me, like, hot pads for my stomach. And the baby passed while he was downstairs, and I just remember screaming his name. And he comes running in, and it looks like a murder scene in our bathroom. Like, she's very, very weak at this time. And I'm like, well, I have to be strong because... We're supposed to lean on one another. Brick lifts me up and he says, don't you dare look in that toilet. And he flushes it. He's like, that's not where our baby is. God had shown up in my life before. And so I knew that he was real. And I just knew that this was one of our trials. I was just focused on having kids. And I was like, Brick, you need to get on board. And he was like, I'm not ready. So there was just so much attention on having a child. There was so much attention on this vision that I was not seeing the same way. I think as we talked to the counselors, it kind of laid out how we were feeling. It kind of quieted down a little bit because we finally felt heard. It was a rough time, but I feel like that six months, we needed that six months. At that moment, we finally were able to plan something together. And we got pregnant the first time. We were planning our trip to Israel, um, so my doctor was like, before you go, you know, I think everything should be good. She just wanted to check on the baby and make sure everything was fine before we left. So we went in at um, eight and a half weeks. The lady, you know, put the gel on, and I look at the screen, and there was no heartbeat. The baby was just lying at the bottom of the sack. And uh, that was really hard. It was really hard, and I remember 
saying like this is a, keep checking like make sure and but there was nothing the baby was just <laughs> I was angry with God I was mad I I just I couldn't understand it It was so hard to just live everyday life. The hardest day for me was we went to church on Mother's Day. The pastor asks all the moms to stand up and she gives every woman a rose that stands up. And that feeling of having to stay seated was so heartbreaking. Like I said, church started to be a really hard place for me. So it was one of those days, and um, I was tearing up, and, and a, a random woman came up to me. I had no idea who she was. She didn't know who I was. I was trying to kind of just stand off to the side a little bit. Um, and she said to me, God has not forgotten you. And I was blown away, blown away. And I just broke down, and she's like, oh, I didn't mean to make you upset. I was like, you have no idea what those words just meant to me. And I remember just having hope in that and just saying, okay, God, I hear you. I hear you. I hear you. I know you're still there. And I got pregnant. I felt more prepared. I felt like, okay, I'm ready for this step. It was like an exciting time, but it was also very scary. Because I'm like, this is the third time. We've been here before. if I have words that can describe the joy I felt. I didn't know how to feel, you know, I'm like, there was just so much, uh, I was overwhelmed. It was just like, of course it's you, of course I was waiting for you. That verse in Revelation that we looked at a moment ago says, Do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I am the living one, Jesus said. I was dead and now, look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and the grave. In other words, Jesus is saying this. He's saying, you don't have to be overcome. Because I've already overcome the world. That confidence is not 
coming to those who try harder. Freedom is not coming to those who that, that strive a little bit more, but it's to those who surrender to Jesus and then acknowledge the fact that my victory is not in my doing, it's in my surrender to His Lordship. That I can trust Him. And it doesn't matter if we're talking about trusting Him as the Savior of your life or just trusting Him for the struggles that you're facing today. The hope and the freedom is in the confidence that we have in who Jesus is and in what Jesus has done. So here's how we're going to end this service today. I'm going to invite the worship team first to come back to the front. And I want to invite some of our prayer team to come as well. And we're going to take a moment at the end of this service. And, and in just a moment, I'm going to open this altar and invite you to, to pray. Maybe you're here today and you don't know God personally. You don't have a relationship with God. You're far from God. Listen, today, the, the best decision you can make is to simply surrender. To simply to just trust God with your heart, with your life. To surrender all that you are to Him. But maybe you're here today and it's not about that. You, you know if you would die today, you know you're going to heaven. You have a relationship with Jesus. But it's been a struggle. It's been a struggle for you to, to trust Him. <laughs> maybe because of something that's happened to you in your past. Like the testimony we heard from Mishi. Or maybe it's something you're dealing with today. Maybe it's a physical sickness. A financial burden that you're carrying. And you just say... I'm struggling today. Let me tell you why I want to invite you to come forward. Because this is not how we keep score in the church. It really doesn't matter to me personally how many of you stay where you're seated or how many come to an altar. But I I want you to see something that happened in the text that we just read. When John was there on the Isle of Patmos, he was isolated, he was lonely, he was hurting, there was nobody to comfort him or to be with him. And then all of a sudden, Jesus shows up. And it doesn't just say that Jesus revealed himself or that he stood before him or that he descended from the clouds. No, it says very specifically that Jesus came and he placed his right hand on my shoulder. How many of you know that was an incredibly generous thing for Jesus to do? To step all the way out of heaven and to come and to place his hand on the shoulder of someone who was alone, who was hurting, and who was discouraged. So I don't want you to just hear God's word today. The Bible says that we are the body of Christ. The church is the hand of Jesus extended. I don't want you to just hear his word today. I want you to feel his hand on your shoulder. And so we just want to place a hand on your shoulder and we want to pray with you today. In just a moment, we're going to dismiss this service and we hope you'll stick around a little while and enjoy the tailgating with us. But listen, right now I want to invite everybody to stand all over this room. Stand with us. And in just a moment, the worship team's going to sing a song. And if you're here today and you need someone to pray with you, to just put a hand on your shoulder and encourage you, I want to invite you while they sing this song to come to the altar. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, maybe you've never prayed a prayer to ask Him to save you, or maybe it's just something that happened so long ago and today you need to come back and surrender your life to Jesus. While they sing this song, I want to invite you to come as well to this altar and to pray. So right now, can we just bow our heads, close our eyes? I want to pray a prayer and then they're going to sing this song. Father, today I thank You for Your Word, God, that we've received today. God, let 
our hearts be open to not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word also. Jesus, you said those that are doers of the word will be established on a firm foundation. And when the storms of life come, they won't be blown over because they've activated their faith on what they've heard. God, give us the courage in this moment to activate our faith on the word that's been spoken. So God, as we pray, God, as we seek you today, I pray that we find salvation and strength and healing in Jesus because we believe you're here and we know that you're more than able in Jesus' name.